Why don't we just offer the Lord a hand clap of praise as we transition tonight? Amen, amen. Well, you can be seated, and of course we are continuing in our um, uh, Elements series, and this series of lessons that we're in now is dealing with relationships, and uh, Brother Landon taught last Wednesday night on emotional wholeness or um, being made whole, and it is interesting how in the scripture that uh, when the Lord would heal someone, he would say, you are made whole, and I'm thankful tonight for that hope that we have, that he does not just deal with the surface symptoms, but he knows all about us, and he is well acquainted with us, and he deals with us um, in the very depths that only he can know. And when the Lord heals us, we can have confidence that we are completely healed. Amen? Amen. Tonight, we're going to spend a little time talking about um, gracious communication and uh, seems to be perhaps a topic that is uh, needed in our day and our hour. Uh, there's, such a, there's such a coarseness to our culture these days. Uh, sometimes you find yourself in public and in places where... Uh, different things are said and people behave in different ways. And um, I, I, I just, it, it grieves me. And I honestly, I, I don't want that to change. I don't want to, as the old song said, I don't want to get adjusted. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, there was a, an Old Testament commandment that they were not to, the people, the children of Israel, were not to boil or cook or seethe in the King James language, a goat, a kid, in its mother's milk. And uh, it seemed a strange commandment. How, why would the Lord care necessarily what milk a, uh, a kid was seethed in, how it was prepared? But I think there is, uh, there's no doubt a number of reasons why that was the case. But I think one thing is there is just kind of a natural... Um, bond relationship between a mother and his child, and there's something just kind of unnatural about taking the milk from the mother and using it to cook her offspring. And it seems like maybe the Lord was wanting to uh, protect them against things that would cause them to lose their sensitivity and uh, to become coarse. And I know there are probably other reasons for that, commandment, but it does seem like it, it goes to this idea of sensitivity. And I think when we begin to talk about communication, and really this probably applies in a number of different areas, entertainment, all sorts of things. I get uh, pretty amazed when I see some of what passes for entertainment these days and the way in which people just get desensitized to the most horrible things. And consume that and call it entertainment. And um, so I think one of the areas and one of the ways in which we probably need to guard ourselves and certainly those that we have influence over is in this area of speech and communication. And uh, it, if we're not careful, it can coarsen relationships. The manner in which we speak to each other communicates a lack of respect, maybe even an outright disrespect. I, I say that not 
necessarily to those in this room because I trust we've got a pretty good grip on this. But I, I listen to people and I think, how could you talk to each other and then go live in the same house? Somebody talk to me that way. I'm not sure I want to go home with them. But, and maybe they don't. I don't know. Maybe they don't want to go home together. But um, this is one way in which I think we can guard our hearts and guard our minds. It's, so I have a very dear friend, and uh, we've been friends for close to 30 years now. Uh, but we kind of have this little running joke that all of life's big questions, for all of life's big questions, the answers usually start with, well, there was this garden. Because it seems like everything goes back to the first couple of chapters of the book, right? You can find the roots of all of this stuff all the way back. So uh, there was this garden, and I'll resist the temptation to preach everything between there and Revelation, but... It's amazing what you can discover just in the first two or three chapters of Genesis about the nature of God, about the nature of creation, about the nature of man, about relationships between God and men. And uh, we, talked about, um, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the church and how that the Lord said early on, it's not good for man to be alone. And how every wife knows that, that it's not good to leave him alone. There's no telling what he'll get into. The Lord knew this as well. But, but even before that, we see in the third verse of the Bible, the Lord says, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And the Lord said, and God said, let there be light. Right in the opening verses, God begins to talk. And if you read down a few verses later in that chapter, you will discover um, in that opening chapter and subsequent chapters, man was made in the image of God. Now, what does it mean for man to be made in the image of God? Because God exists outside this physical universe, so does this mean that we look like God? I think there is... I think there is some element of that, actually, as surprising as that may seem. Um, I mean, after all, when God was manifest in the flesh, he kind of looked like us, right? We wouldn't expect that Jesus would look any different than us. He hath no form nor comeliness. He wasn't that good looking. He probably looked like us. And, but he was, he was a man. He was recognizable as a man. So in... And it even talks about, you know, that Adam was created um, looking forward to what Jesus was going to look like. So I, I think there is, it's, it's kind of one of these things where you have to put pieces together. But I think there is an argument to be made that being made in the image of God, if God fully revealed himself in our physical universe, this is what he would look like. This is what he did with Jesus. But I think the... The real message of that verse is more than that. It's more uh, than just a physical image, but that we were also spiritually, you might say, in his image. And you can see this play out if you just kind of... The reason for creation um, really was for God to have someone or something that he could have communion, have a relationship with, and that 
creation, that part of creation, would need to be in his image. And this is what he did. He would come and talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. I'm saying all of this to say the power of communication was given to mankind, and specifically the power of speech, because we were made in the image of God. And it's something that's encoded in us, probably even, we would say, in our DNA, but it's probably encoded much deeper than that in our nature. This idea of being created in his image, and part of that with the, not just the ability, but actually the need to communicate. And the way that that works out for us in our current bodies and in our current world in which we live, primarily it works itself out by speech. And you can, if you just study and you just do a quick search through the scripture, you'll be amazed if you haven't done this, all of the verses that talk about speech and the importance of the way that we talk. God made us in that way for us to communicate with each other, but even more fundamentally than that, he made us that way so that he could communicate with us. Now, our sin has brought a separation, and our communication with God is not as clear as it was for Adam and Eve initially in the garden. They spoke face-to-face, and Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, but the face-to-face is coming again at some point in the future. We're going to have all of these impediments removed, and we will see and we will hear and we will communicate openly. One of the really interesting things that kind of makes this case that communication is so deeply ingrained in us, I don't know if, um, of course, whenever you have, um, if you interpret for the deaf or you see uh, an event where someone is interpreting for the deaf, here they use what's called American Sign Language. There is a version of sign language, though, called Nicaraguan Sign Language. And Nicaraguan Sign Language is a little bit interesting because it was developed really spontaneously. And what happened was in Nicaragua uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, those of you that are of my age and older will remember there was a civil war and there was the Sandinistas and the rebels uh, knocked out the existing government, they took over, and part of what happened when they took over was they had these grand ideas about um, social needs. One of the things that they did was they put together schools, and even they did schools for the deaf. Now, up until that point, kids that were deaf were pretty well kept in isolation. There was this feeling of shame or whatever. They were separated. They were kept with their families, and their families often wouldn't even take them out into public, so they were very isolated. But when these schools were formed, these kids got together, and before long, those that were working in the school started to notice that the kids were making motions to each other, and they seemed to be communicating. So they called in these uh, linguists from all over, and there has been an great deal of study gone into what happened there in Nicaragua. But long story short, those kids were put together at a time where developmentally they were ripe for language. Now, you know how this is. If you see these two and three-year-old kids in foreign countries, they're already speaking their language, and I could go there for two or three years and not pick it up. It's because their minds are such 
and are so malleable that they pick up this language. They're in a prime time to learn the language. They pick it up, and they speak more fluently than I ever could by the time they're in kindergarten. So those kids were put together in that time frame, and this need and desire to communicate worked itself out. They began to teach each other what certain gestures would have certain meanings. And the longer this went on and the more new kids came and there were new generations, it developed from just a simple set of gestures into grammatical rules and into a legitimate language with a detailed grammar and vocabulary and so on and so forth. Really amazing. Nobody sat down and taught them how to do this. It grew out of the fact that the need to communicate is buried so deeply in our nature that when they came together, it just spontaneously happened. And um, so you can hear similar stories about men held in POW camps. They develop little codes for tapping on the walls and tapping on bars and tapping on anything that will make noise. And they develop a code and somehow it escapes the notice of the guards and everything else, but they're able to communicate among each other. It's just, it's just in us. And it is there for us to communicate with each other. And it, the Lord put it there for us to have this desire to communicate with him also. And when you begin to look at speech in that way, that this is part of, and think about this, there's really nothing else in the animal kingdom or else in creation that we communicate with in that way. Now, we have a couple of little dogs at home, and I don't argue that they're the brightest, but they know a few words, you know, a few key words. One of them is snack. They know snack. But the other one that's funny that they know is they know paper. And when they hear paper, they know that whatever they're doing is not right, and they better straighten up. And they will straighten up. But, you know, I've never sat down and talked to them about um, the state of current events or where I think we're going with our culture or um, the importance of upcoming elections or, you know, I've never talked to them about the new birth. or I mean, you just, you just don't talk, you don't communicate on that level. There's some rudimentary communication, but there's something that missing is missing because they were not created in the image of God. But for us who were created in the image of God, speech is an integral part of that, and it is a, a part that really is a privilege for us to be able to communicate in these ways. Have you thought about that? You know, when I was growing up, I didn't, I wondered, well, how, I know what all these words mean, you know, first, second, third grade, but I just kind of in my mind figured there must be some great council somewhere where they sit around and they decide, okay, here are the words, and here's how you use them, and Here's how they work, and it just doesn't happen that way at all. The reason why languages are the way they are is just because of what happened in that school in Nicaragua is that people get together and they need to communicate and they develop, and that's why if you have um, not so much these days, but in days of old where communication was really limited, you could have two people on the opposite side of the same mountain that had two completely different languages and couldn't understand each other because they never came in contact and the languages never mixed and they each had their, their own language. So, and what is language? Well, we make these sounds and there are meanings that are associated with those sounds. We're really communicating meaning. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we're sitting here 
kind of having this conversation where I'm making these noises and hopefully you're understanding. I mean, I think you are. You act like you are. It's kind of, it's strange when you just kind of boil it down, you strip everything away, you look at it, it's pretty, pretty amazing. But the reason for it is God gave us these things um, for the purpose of communication. So what I'm getting to tonight is the importance in us being careful with this, treating it as a gift, treating it as something sacred, treating it as something important. And so many times it is used to berate or to tear down. But um, what does the, what do the Proverbs say? In, in the tongue, there's life and death is in the power of the tongue. Now, I don't think what that means is like, um, you know, we speak those things that are not as though they were. That's what God does. Now, if you have a word from the Lord, if the Lord instructs you to speak a certain thing, then you should certainly do that. But I can't call dead things to life just in my own power. I think what the writer of the Proverbs is saying is that I have the ability to tear down and I have the ability to build up with my speech, with what I say. I can encourage or I can beat down. I can look for the positive or I can emphasize the negative. And we have a choice in how we communicate and in what we do. Um, It's interesting to me that among the Old Testament commandments, two out of, at least two out of the ten, are primarily tied to speech or the tongue. There is one commandment that says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Be careful how you use the name of the Lord when you talk. And the other is don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't use your tongue to be deceitful. But let your communication be honest and be open. And when we come to the New Testament, and we're going to look at this, I see a lot of folks now that say, well, that was all law. And now we're under grace, so we can take a big, deep breath, and we can exhale, and everything is great. And I am thankful for the work of Calvary, and I'm thankful for the gift of the Holy Ghost that enables us to overcome. But if anything, grace has raised the bar. If anything, grace is a higher law than law. Now, that shouldn't be discouraging. We have the Holy Ghost to help us. But Jesus went through the commandments himself, talking about, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman to commit adultery, you have committed adultery. And the message of the New Testament is not just that you should not bear false witness that you should always be honest. A lot of people hide behind that, and they think, oh, well, as long as what I say is true, I can be as mean as a snake. I mean, that person that person is ugly. They looked in their mirror this morning. They ought to know that. It doesn't hurt if I tell them. It's the truth. I don't think that's the message of the Scripture. And in fact, even in dealing with, even in dealing with serious matters, we have to find a way to speak the truth in love. Now, what does that mean, to speak it in love? Does that mean 
to be soft and not yell? Well, maybe. Really, what speaking the truth in love means, this is it's kind of an interesting study. I know it's probably old hat. You've heard this. There are multiple words in the New Testament used for love. But the God love, the agape love, is love that is exercised for the benefit of the object of the love. There are some kinds of love that are selfish. I like you because you like me. I like you because you're nice to me. You make me feel good. You're, you are, um, you're, in some cases, it's a status symbol for me to be able to hang out with you because of your celebrity or your whatever. There's a benefit to me, and I love you because of the benefits you bring to me. But agape love is not that way. Agape love is strictly interested in the well-being of the object of its affection. And so when we speak the truth in love, what we are saying is, yes, we may have to bear, we may have to be the bearer of bad news. We may have to communicate to someone that if they don't change the direction of their life, they're going to be lost. But we should do that in such a way that our ultimate concern is in their redemption, not in their condemnation. And this is what Paul means when he's talking in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. The first three chapters, Paul talks about the great revelation that God has given to him about the nature of the church and what the church actually is. That this was the mystery, he says, that has been hidden through the ages, is that God was doing this great thing, not Judaism 2.0, not the law 2.0, but a brand new thing that would take everybody and put us all in one body, whether Jew or Gentile, and we would be his bride. And in fact, along those lines, when we read Ephesians chapter 2, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, so on and so forth. We, we are in a rush to get down to verse 8, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And everybody loves that verse, By grace are you saved, not of yourselves. And in our rush to get there, we skip over verse 7 where he says that it is through this process of quickening us, redeeming us, that he is actually showing through eternity and in the ages to come and to the heavenlies, he is showing his great riches and kindness to us through Jesus Christ in the ages to come. It's a phenomenal verse. So Paul's talking about the greatness of the church for the first three chapters, then for the last three chapters, okay, if the church is all of that, then how does that affect my life? Well, Paul gets down to brass tacks. This is how you ought to live. And whenever you begin to read down, you get to about verse 22. He's talking in Ephesians 4. He says it's kind of this old man, new man sort of thing. He says that you put off the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and renewed, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So we understand that language. We've been born again. It's time for us to put off the old man and allow the new man to grow and to be mature and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Not just an outward show, but true holiness. And what does he say? Wherefore, putting away lying... 
Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We are connected together in this body of Christ. Our speech should be such that it communicates honesty to each other. But that's not the end of it. He takes a little side trip here about anger and dealing with conflict. But notice verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now that's some King James lingo there. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Anything that would be destructive, anything that's rotten. I hear a lot of speech in places where I go about rotten things, about corrupt things, things that don't edify. To be edified is to be built up, to be strengthened, to be nourished, to grow. And Paul is saying, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And that would be the things that we normally would think about, the things that we would be mindful of in the way that we talk. And we've most of us have been taught that you shouldn't Say certain things. I hear, I hear people nowadays say, well, it's not that big a deal. That's just the way we talk. It's just words. Wait a minute. There are ideas that are associated with those words. There are meanings that are attached to those words. There are motives that are attached to those words. There are heart issues that are attached to those words. And I would take this even a step further. Paul says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. I try <laughs> with, I don't know, hopefully some success. I talk to my kids about minced, what's called minced oaths, where you take a phrase or a word that's commonly said that would get your mouth washed out with soap at home, and you replace that with some other word, and you say the other word. Maybe it's mispronounced, maybe it's another word that sounds like that, maybe it's a word that made the hearer think you were going to say what you weren't going to say, but it is a substitute for the word that is unacceptable. Well, if our position that it's not just words, that there are attitudes associated with these things, if I make a different sound but I'm communicating the same attitude, if I make a different sound, but I'm communicating the same issue or the same emotion or the same set of values with what I'm saying, I need to step back because this is not just about the pronunciation of certain words. This is about a heart issue and what are we communicating from ourselves to each other. The Lord said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you hear yourself, I know, we... You know, we live in this world, and sometimes I wonder, why. what was the Lord thinking in John 17 when he said, I pray not that you take them out of the world? Why not? I mean, come on. This overcoming the world stuff's pretty tough. We live and we work and we go among, and there are conversations, and we are in this. We're saturated by it, both in conversations that we have and things that we hear, media that gets consumed, it's everywhere. And if we're not careful, we catch ourselves responding in the same way. If there is a stimulus that comes, there's a word that pops, and we won't say that word, but we say another word. We have to be careful. 
And the psalmist prayed, he said, set a guard on my mouth. But for us, I think it even goes a step further. Created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It's tough. I mean, you hit your finger with a hammer, you know, you want, you want to say something. It seems, like, it seems like saying something would help. The reality is we have to be in control of emotions, motives, all of these things. So many of what we would consider, and if you think about this, what we would consider curse words, they are either about taking something that is sacred and making it profane, that is making it common, making it something that's just talked about and is not revered, or it is an invoking of the Lord's name in vain. It's asking God to do something that we really don't mean for him to do. And if you think about the things that we have found objectionable, there is kind of this category of just coarse language of talking about things that really shouldn't be talked about anyway. There is the category of taking sacred things and making them common and thereby profane. And then there is the category of words that are using the Lord's name in vain or asking God to do something that we really don't intend for him to do. And why would we create substitute words for any of those things? So this guarding our conversation is a big part of what comes to us when we are living for the Lord. And it's only by the power of the Holy Ghost that we can do this. What did James say? No man can tame the tongue. You can't do it. Because it is so intimately connected to what is in your heart, if it's in here, there is coming a time. It will come out. There will be some situation in which that nature that is inside of you and that corruptness that is inside you, you may know how to... Um, you may know how to keep a, uh, a good face on and, and have your game face on. I read an article about John Madden this week. For those of you that are spiritual, he's a football coach who became an announcer for many, many years, and he's about 85 years old. One of the stories that they told was that in private, <laughs> he cusses like a sailor. And no offense to if there's any Navy guys in here, but but that he uses profanity like every third or fourth word. It's just constant. And I'm thinking, how in the world could somebody whose livelihood is on national television with hundreds of thousands, millions of people watching, how can you talk like that in private and then just cut it off whenever you're on the air? But he had this ability to shut it off. He knew when to talk like he's talking to everybody and when it was safe for him to talk like he really wanted to talk. And I'm going to tell you, you may be able to do that, but there will come a time when that corruption that is on the inside will work its way out. There will be some situation. There will be some, um, there will be some hammer that hits your fingers. There will be something that causes that to come out. And so really, when we're talking about gracious speech, we're talking about creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me so that my reflex is to say, Lord, help me, not in vain, not just using the Lord as some sort of, a, of an oath or something casual, but 
that our response would be to cry out for help. Um, and Paul says, notice this, he said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. This is the purpose, is that those who hear us receive grace. Not that they would be torn down, not that they would be beaten down, not that they would be discouraged, but that we would be one passing grace on to someone else. If our communication is with each other and with the Lord, and this ability to speak and this ability to communicate is a gift from God, how important is it that we use it for purposes that God would have us to use it for? Acts 10 is one of my favorite passages for a number of reasons. That's Cornelius' house, of course. But have you noticed in there that an angel appeared to Cornelius and said, go get Peter, and then an angel appeared to Peter and said, go with these guys to Cornelius? When the angel showed up at Cornelius' house, why didn't the angel just tell him, you need to repent and be baptized? The angel said, you need to go ask for Simon, and he will tell you the ways of life. It is our responsibility to speak and to minister grace to the hearers. And I'm going to tell you, you can't just, what is the scriptural principle? You don't get sweet water and bitter water out of the same well. If our goal is to minister grace to those that we come in contact with and to be a conduit through which the Lord can flow and that he can reach the lost through us, then we have to be operating in that way all of the time. We can't be bitter and caustic and ugly and then all of a sudden turn on the grace and the charm. People think, what in the world? This is you know, just another politician. But we have to speak in a manner that ministers grace unto the hearers. And I would say this too. It's not just our tongue, but it's our keyboards also. And this may not necessarily be the right room for this message, but social media has created what some people call them keyboard commandos. That is, when they're at home, in the safety of their home, operating on a keyboard, they feel very safe. And they will say things that would get them punched in the mouth if they said it face to face. But we should not be confused. Our communication and our speech includes what we say when we're online or when we're having a conversation, if we're, and by the way, Facebook is not a really good place to have a theological argument. It won't end well. It just doesn't, you're not going to convince them. They're not going to convince you. It's just not going to happen. You'd be better off, go get a cup of coffee somewhere. If you like Starbucks, go to Starbucks, get a cup of coffee, sit down, talk about it, get the Bible out, talk about it. Establish a friendship, get face-to-face so you can see each other and see how much you love each other and work it out. But it just, sometimes there is a, seems in our day, there is this feeling that somehow this communication that happens online is exempt. And we have to remind ourselves, we may think we're having a private conversation online, but that never goes away and there's no such thing as private. If with the right warrant and the right IT guy, it can all be made public. You better be careful what you type. I just threw that in. James said, don't swear. Jesus said, you've heard it 
said, you know, not to swear certain things. And Jesus said, don't swear at all. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Jesus said, thou shalt, um, you have heard it said, don't forswear thyself, but perform your oaths unto the Lord. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. You're swearing by things that you have no control over and no power over. You would be better off, let your communication be yea or nay, for whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. And James ties it in with condemnation. If you say something and then it doesn't happen, if you just say yes or no, you understand that I'm going to do my best to make that happen. But there are circumstances, sometimes it doesn't happen. But when you say, I swear that this will happen, I mean, then what whenever it doesn't happen? Something happens, something legitimately prevents it from happening. You've broken an oath. This is where James said, anything more is condemnation. We have to set a guard on our mouths and be very careful. So Paul again visits this topic in Colossians 4, and I I think this is an interesting verse, verse 6. He said, let your speech be always with grace, Colossians 4, 6. Seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. That phrase just kind of grabbed me this week. Now, it's a little different than what we mean now. Because we say somebody's salty today. That's That's not what it means. We mean they've got attitude. They're they're bitter. They're coming at you. Um... If somebody's salty, they're, um, they're needing to be calmed down a little bit. That's not really, you have to kind of put yourself back in the ancient world. And first of all, salt is a seasoning. I think James is saying, let your speech be with grace and do your best to make it palatable. Make it, if you have something that's hard to say, something that's hard to communicate, Season your speech with salt. Make it, make it a little easier to swallow. Make it a little easier to get down. Put yourself, <coughs> pardon me, put yourself in that person's position and ask yourself, if someone was delivering this message to me, what would I, how would I want to hear it? What would be the beneficial thing? And it goes back to speaking the truth in love. The other piece of that, though, is not just the not just the seasoning, but the fact that salt was used as a preservative. And salt was, uh, meat was packed in salt to prevent it from spoiling and so forth. And this is an important thing because the purpose of our speech, again, is to redeem and not to destroy and to save and not to, I think maybe the Lord wants me to shut it down. Um, the purpose, though, of our speech should be to preserve and to bring life and not death. And so we season our speech with salt for that purpose so that, so that we are preserving life and not destroying it. We have to be careful with what we say. Just got a few minutes left, and I want to kind of wrap up with this thought. Talked a lot about speaking, but communication is a two-way street. 
And it's important that we be good listeners also. Proverbs 18.2, the wise man said, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. What, if you read that in more modern translations, he's not interested in understanding. <coughs> he only wants to reveal what's in his heart. He only wants to say what's on his mind. So you've probably met people like this. They're not really listening to you. They're thinking of what they're going to say next. I mean, everybody knows that conversation should go back and forth. But some people are not listening to what you're saying. They're just planning their next salvo, right? And really, we should be listening with the intent to understand and not to form a response. I mean, think about this. When we take the time to listen, we're communicating respect for the person who's talking to us. And what we're saying is what you have to say is important. And I want to understand your side, even if you're dealing with a conflict, and conflict is a huge part of this, how do we deal with conflict? Well, one thing is we, with, when it comes to conflict, do our best to talk about ideas and not about personalities. Put the personal things aside and have this conversation. And when the other person is expressing, explaining, then we be an active listener to understand what it is that the other person is saying. A few verses down in verse 13 of that same chapter, Proverbs 18, the wise man says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame unto him. How many times, I don't ask you to raise your hands, how many times have we embarrassed ourselves because we saw something and it was so clear and it was so easily understood and we made statements and we made big uh, a big to-do about it, and I wound up embarrassing myself because I was judging a matter based on what I saw, but there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on that I didn't know and I didn't understand. And this is why the Bible says we ought to be slow to speak and quick to listen because you pick up so much when you stop and you really listen. Not just let the other person talk, you listen. And we communicate respect for that other person whenever we do that. It's a key part of communication. If I want to be understood, the best thing that I can do is try to understand the other person. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I want them to hear my side, if I want them to hear my perspective, I need to be willing to hear theirs. And not just with a goal to be able to refute every point that they make, but sometimes we... We just need to let them say their piece and help them explain. And you know what? We may discover that we weren't as right as we thought we were when we take the time to really listen. This is a key thing in managing conflict. And Paul was talking a little bit about conflict back in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, be angry and sin not. This is right in the middle of his discussion about speech. And I think what he's talking about is ways in which we manage conflict and we do it with a graciousness to our communication. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry about things that aren't right. But don't let your anger or your emotion take you to a place where you commit a sin, where you say something that you shouldn't say, where you make some statement that you can't back up. 
or you damage someone because you let your emotions get out of hand. And he says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't, don't seethe on these things, but work to get it resolved quickly. Work to put it to rest. It's okay to be upset, but we need to work toward a solution where we can let it go. And uh, Brother Hughes was talking Sunday night about forgiveness, and so many of those things are just so true. That fruit of the Spirit has to be active in our lives if we're going to get past some of these conflicts and these things that come into our lives. If we're going to address them and deal with them quickly, it's going to be the power of the Holy Ghost to do it. If we don't, what is the next phrase in that verse says? Neither give place to the devil. The enemy is looking for a foothold. That's why conflicts, especially conflicts at home, need to be settled quickly. Because any rift, any opening, the enemy would like to slide in and he would like to put a wedge there and then he drives it and every lick of the hammer against that wedge pushes the parties further apart. Don't let those things linger. Don't let them fester. Don't seethe in them. Don't revisit them and play it up in your mind and stir yourself up. Sometimes it's this victimhood thing, it's so delicious to be done wrong. And you can just have all manner of, you know, something bad has happened and you just want to feel justified in your anger or your whatever toward the person that has done you wrong. And we allow ourselves sometimes to go back and relive it over and over again. We've got to, at some point, trust these things into the hands of the Lord and recognize in our own mind when you're headed down that path let there be gracious communication and turn it to the Lord. Then the next verse, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. He's, he's putting lying and stealing and anger management, all of these principles right here in the midst of this gracious communication thing. And you think about this, what do they have to do with each other? Well, when we are ungracious in our communication, we are stealing dignity from those from our hearer. And when we don't minister grace, we're ministering judgment before it's time. But really, our purpose and our goal should be redemptive. How can I, if I'm speaking the truth in love, how can I reach to that person who may need to hear a difficult message but I need to say it, I need to frame it, I need to communicate it in a redemptive way so that they are brought close to the cross and not driven away from the cross. Amen. Why don't we stand together tonight? I joked with Brother Hughes, both of them, after church on Sunday night that really what I should do tonight was play a video of Sunday night because... Brother James Hughes really touched on so many of these issues. And these are things that we don't have the ability to do ourselves without the Holy Ghost. But we have at our disposal the power of the Holy Ghost. We have the fruit of the Spirit. And we are able to, with the help and the grace of God, we are able to moderate our speech and make our communication, not just the words that we say, but what we communicate make those things gracious so that the hearer, the recipient of what we're communicating receives grace and not condemnation. Amen.
Let's go to the Lord tonight, ask him to help us to apply these words to our own hearts and lives. Lord, we're so thankful for what you have given us, the power that you have given us, the strength, Lord, to live in ways that are pleasing to you. Lord, if you would help us to see those that we communicate with as you see them, as those who are potentially children of God for all of eternity, those that would be united with you throughout eternity, maybe our perspective and our view would change and we could allow our own hurt feelings or things that we feel like maybe we've been done wrong, we can overlook that as we reach for them with gracious communication. We're asking tonight, Lord, that you would apply these words deep into our hearts, that they would really take root and that we would be drawn, O oh Lord, to communicate with each other and with you. Lord, we certainly don't want condemnation from you. Help us, Lord, not to communicate condemnation to others. But help us, Lord, to be toward them the way we want you to be toward us and the way, O oh Lord, that you have been to us. We're so grateful for your work in our lives. We ask for your anointing and your help with this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. Greet one another. And uh, we will be back together this weekend. Amen.